This episode is brought to you by JBM SOS, a new on-demand talent solution for VC and PE-backed startups and scale-ups. SOS gives clients access to a pool of over 200 high-profile scale-up COOs, GMs, and ops strategy consultants on an interim or project basis. So, if you're a founder or investor looking for fast access to world-class talent to help you execute and scale at pace, let our JBM SOS team be your partner in growth. To learn more, get in touch at info at jbmc.co.uk. In today's 40-minute mentor episode, I'm joined by Rachel Crook, the incredibly inspiring CEO of the tech startup Lifted. From her early internships working to improve conditions for sex workers in Bangladeshi brothels, to her job advising the Prime Minister on youth unemployment, Rachel has spent her career striving to help people who really need it. In 2019, following her mother's dementia diagnosis, Rachel was inspired to co-found Lifted, a company looking to revolutionise home care by using cutting-edge tech to improve not just the lives of those who need care, but their families and the carers themselves, something that is more relevant than ever given the impact the pandemic has had on the care industry. I loved speaking to Rachel about her mission-driven career. She's one of those enviable entrepreneurs who's always looking to fix meaningful problems, making things better and tackle the big issues in society. We cover some really fascinating topics in our chat, including Rachel's career shift from government to consulting at McKinsey and the importance of getting the right skills to structure a rewarding career. We talk about the benefits of having a co-founder and also building a startup focused on an industry that she's personally connected to and the importance of being kind to yourself as a startup founder. And, in her own words, to remember to let the fun outweigh the fear when you're scaling. Rachel's intrinsic drive and passion is so infectious and really inspiring, as I'm sure you'll hear for yourself today. So whether you have a personal connection to the care industry, or you're an entrepreneur looking to take your business to the next level, or perhaps you're thinking about joining a mission-driven business like Lifted, there is so much in this episode for you, and I know you'll take a lot from Rachel's experience and advice. So with all that said, please sit back, relax, and enjoy my conversation with the wonderful Rachel Crook. Rachel, welcome to the 40 Minute Mentor. It's a pleasure to have you here today. want to kick off, as we always do, with an overview of your CV in 30 seconds, if you don't mind. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. 30 seconds is quite quick. So I did an undergrad at Warwick. I did a year of my degree in LA, which was fun. Um, then I did a master's at Oxford in international relations. Then I joined the civil service fast stream, which is the graduate scheme for civil servants. And I worked on those really interesting things, including heading up a team doing counter extremism for young people, which was super interesting and violence against women. Then I moved into the cabinet office and was a senior advisor in the prime minister's implementation unit which is where you advise the Prime Minister on whether or not we're on track to meet government's priorities. And sometimes we are, and sometimes we're not. And then I left and went to McKinsey and tried to kind of develop my commercial skills. Um, and as a McKinsey as a consultant for about a year and a half. And then I left McKinsey to join some people who started thinking about social care and co-founded a startup called Lifted. I mean, that was quick. Wow. That was a lot of it. <laughs> 
No, that's brilliant. That's amazing. Thank you so much. Uh, wow. So many things to talk about. I'm really looking forward to this. But I wanted to start, as I always like to, just a, a little bit before we get on to Lifted and McKinsey, you know, the earlier part of your career, you did some really, really interesting internships and early career experiences in, you, you mentioned, I, I, I think you investigated the living conditions in brothels in Bangladesh, and uh, you worked in Uganda. Can you tell us a little bit more about sort of how you landed these early uh, positions and how those experiences have helped to kind of shape the leader you are today and, and the experience you've had? Yeah, I think I've always been really drawn to the really tough problems and the people that are affected by them. And so when I was doing, when I was doing my undergrad, I heard about BRAC, which is the largest microfinance organization in the world, actually, in Bangladesh. And they lent over a billion dollars in the year I was there. And they were 80% self-financing, which was, I thought, a really interesting model for a charity because I could see, you know, the impact that comes when you generate your own income. And I rocked up in Bangladesh to do this internship as kind of a slightly precocious, probably quite annoying 19, 20-year-old. And they didn't really have a lot for me to do. And I really wanted to do something meaningful because I'd spent my gap year in India and had felt like I could have used my skills a bit more. So when I got there, I said, you know, what would you like me to do? And they said, well... They were kind of, I guess, just kind of keen to get me to do something. They said, oh, you know, we've, we've had this, this brothel where there's been an arson attack. Maybe you could go and check it out. Much to my father's horror, I did. And I went to check that out with a, with a colleague who was um, Bengali. And we arrived in this brothel and we started talking to these women who were sex workers and trying to help them. And we went, the first time we went to see them, they kind of told us things were, were fine and good. Obviously, the arson attack had been really damaging for them, but that the conditions they said normally were all right. I really liked them and I really felt like I wanted to help them, but I just didn't really believe what they said. I was worried that what they were saying was being conditioned by the environment they were in. Mm. And I was worried they didn't weren't able to speak freely. So we left. And then my colleague actually, who was Bengali, and we'd gone with, you know, her transport and everything, she left and she spoke the language and I didn't speak Bengali at all. And so I was, I was kind of really stuck. And so I thought, but I, I've got to go back and understand this more. I guess this is part of my kind of slightly obsessional need to find the answer. And so I found a translator. I found how to get there using a bus and a boat. And we went back there and spoke to these women. And sure enough, when we were able to take them out of the brothel they actually lived in and talk to them in a separate environment, they told us stories about abuse and about conditions that were untrue. And so I was able to take that information back and present it. And I guess what that really showed me is you know, the, the power of kind of just rocking up and asking and also the power of if you think something isn't right and you think that you have the ability to try and make it better, to use the skills and experience that I'm lucky to have to give other people a voice. And so I used similar experience when I was doing my master's at Oxford. I was really interested in the way that gay people were being treated in different countries. And I went to volunteer in Uganda, which at the time was dealing with the existence of a promotion of a, a, an act of parliament that would have made it punishable by death to be gay. So it was a really difficult time for them. And I went there and again, got to use my kind of skills to speak to people about their experiences and try and advocate for their voices for change. So I guess that's, that's what conditioned those early experiences. Wow. Yeah, fascinating. I can imagine um, my father, if it was myself or my sister, would have had a similar reaction to yours, kind of going into those sorts of environments. But that's really interesting. And and, and I know you then ended up in in government. I would love to just dig into that a little bit because I've seen I've seen recently quite a few people come through this path and then move into tech. So, what was the thinking behind going into the civil service uh, uh, fast stream when you did? And and what was your what was your time like there? Were there any particular highlights? 
Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I actually come from a, a long generation of civil servants. I'm a, I was a third generation civil servant. My mum was a oh, civil wow. servant. My uncle um, sat on the board of a government department. My grandfather was a was a civil servant and worked for Lord Heseltine. So it was kind of, I, it's not the family business, obviously, because it's not a business, but I'd always really been drawn to government because I think, you know, government has almost unlimited money. So your ability to actually impact change on people's lives is pretty extraordinary. And you are also the people tasked with, with solving some of those problems. And I guess the last year actually has really shown people like the power of the government, you know, with the furlough scheme and with everything. And you can criticize them in lots of ways and, and justifiably so, but they are the people who run the country and their work is super important. And to be part of that, at the, really in my first job was a real privilege. So yeah, I got to do some really fun things. So I joined on the fast stream and you kind of rotate jobs. So I started off working in government comms and I worked a little bit on... Um, different communication campaigns and one of the things that I got to do it was really fun as I got sent to the G8 which was in Ireland which was amazing and my sole job for three days was to stop politicians bumping into journalists Um, uh, (laughs) because you don't want that to happen but it did mean I was in an extraordinary situation where I found myself in the room with you know with Barack Obama with Vladimir Putin it was really amazing and obviously you know at that point I didn't I didn't get to kind of say or do anything I was just supposed to keep them away from the journalists but it doesn't matter right because from someone, you know, I just graduated from Oxford with an MPhil in international relations where I've been studying these people. So to then find yourself in the same room was, was really amazing. But I, but I am someone who likes to get my hands dirty. And I was asked to think about um, the UK's contribution to tackling female genital mutilation and forced marriage. So specific forms of violence that are enacted predominantly against women, but sometimes against men. And obviously, I'd already had a bit of context of that from my work in, in Bangladesh. And I very much felt like there was a missing piece where there was a lot of responsibility that people had placed on faith leaders, so religious leaders in local communities as important opinion formers. And there wasn't a lot of work being done to kind of try and use the trust and influence that faith groups had in the UK to stop these forms of violence happening. So working with some colleagues, we created a declaration against female genital mutilation that was signed by every faith, major faith leader in the UK, which I'm really proud of. Wow. And then we set up a bunch of projects and programs to tackle violence against women. So that was one, that was a highlight. Another highlight was we were asked to think about trying to change the narrative around young Muslims in the UK and how we could try and, because at the time I was working on that Islamic state or so-called Islamic state was kind of gaining popularity. And one of the things we were thinking about is how do we change the narrative so that young people don't, aren't attracted to go and you know, live their lives and, and in, in that terrible conflict. And one of the things we thought about was trying to give more young people a voice. So we trained a whole bunch of young people in journalism and then we linked them up with regional newspaper groups. And it was brilliant because the newspaper groups were desperate for stories from different communities. And these young people were desperate for the skills. And it really, really worked. And actually a bunch of them got jobs as journalists, which I really didn't expect. That was really amazing. So those were some of my highlights. So yeah, Yeah. I really, I I recommend government in, in, there's lots of frustrations about it, which I'm sure I can come on to, but your ability to kind of be able to impact people's lives is is really amazing. Yeah, and I think given the time we're in at the moment recording this during lockdown 3.0 and the you know the government as you said justifiably at times has been criticized, but I think you've also given a really interesting picture there around the value of working in in close in close proximity to those people making those huge decisions. You had some clearly some incredible experiences, one that have have left a lasting impact, and you can actually do some real good. And clearly, you did that. On the flip side, though, I'm sure there were an abundance of frustrations. Tell us a bit about that, and 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 perhaps how did that end up? You know, when was the right time to make that move away from government? It's an interesting one. I mean, like 
I would definitely go back to government. So I kind of don't want to be too too critical of it because I think, first of all, it's, it's a huge beast government. So there's amazing, there's a huge number of jobs, right? So like, just because you don't like one bit doesn't mean the other bit's not right for you. I think ultimately though, like, ministers are the people that have been elected and it's their decisions about what is implemented. And so if you are someone like me who kind of sometimes is quite impatient, it's like, well, I know this is what needs to happen. Let's make it happen. That's just not your role, right? Because you're not elected and that's right. Like, it's, you know, I hadn't, I've never stood for election. No one's chosen me. So why should I have my vision be implemented? But it does get frustrating if you kind of put what you think is strong evidence to them and they don't kind of act on it. Then you're kind of like, well, how much more innovative can I be here? And I also think as well, like, you know, the risk appetite is lower in government than it is in the private sector and not always, but in general. And I also felt strongly that kind of going back to my very first point about why I was so attracted to the organisation in Bangladesh, you know, I could see organisations being so dependent on government money that then could get turned off because, you know, there wasn't the political appetite anymore and their work was kind of stymied. And I thought, well, actually, if you want to enact social change, which is really my goal, then you need to be in control of your own income. And how you're in control of your own income is you understand how, how business works, right? And you can build a financial model and you can understand how investors think and you can understand market analysis. And I knew that I wasn't going to be able to develop those skills in government because they aren't what they look for. And at that point, I was in the cabinet office. And the, as I said, the cabinet office has this group of civil servants, many of whom actually are consultants. They come from consultancies and they are using a lot of analytical skills and policy skills to advise ministers. And I thought some of those people had really useful and interesting skills and I thought I'd like to develop them. And then McKinsey recruited me because they actually were trying to recruit more women. And a couple of years earlier, they had done this event where they took 100 women to Paris for the weekend um, and talked to us about leadership. And they took nine from the UK and I was really lucky to be one of them. And so I'd kept the conversation going. And at that point, though, I'd, I'd run teams and I'd led projects. And I was like, OK, I think I've learned a lot. And either I've become more senior in government or I need to go and get these commercial skills because it's going to get more and more difficult to get them. I think mm. it's easy to get them at the end of your career. Yeah. And so I, and so I, I, I made, made the decision to go and do that. Fantastic. And yeah, you couldn't have gone to a more prestigious place than McKinsey. How did you find that transition? Um, and what were the skills that you, you sort of really developed during that, that 18-month period? It's interesting. I think the transition was tough because I had run teams and I had people reporting to me and I delivered projects. And actually being a consultant is you deliver projects, but again, your projects are advice to, to business leaders and then it's up to them to go and implement it a lot of the time. Not always, and different consultancies have different responsibilities, but McKinsey, a lot, what they do is strategy. So that's what mm. you're advising them on. So that was tough. But what was brilliant and what I, I mean, I absolutely learned those hard skills, right? So when you join McKinsey as, as a non, an experienced hire, but a non-business experienced hire, when I joined anyway, and it was a couple of years ago now, they they do a pretty intensive course. Like you literally get sent five read books in the mail and you have to read them. And they're like financial analysis books. And then we got sent to Austria for three weeks to learn financial analysis. So like, you know how to build a model by the end of that financial model. You understand you have a basically a, a, what they call a mini MBA. It's almost like a crash course MBA. You have lessons on strategy and branding and all that kind of thing. And so you learn to, I'd say you learn to think probably from the perspective of an investor is how mm. you learn to think because a lot of what McKinsey's doing is looking at businesses and thinking, is this an attractive business? And by attractive, like, is it going to, yeah. be, going to generate profit? So your mindset is kind of shifting to that. So I think that's really helpful. And then, you know, everyone at McKinsey is, I mean, obviously, excluding myself, everyone's super smart. And so they just challenge you to be better mm. a lot of times. 
Okay, yeah. No, well, we, we've seen on this podcast many very, very successful entrepreneurs have had that grounding in consulting, whether it's, you know, in the middle of their career or at the beginning. So it's, clear, it's clearly some of those skills become very useful and, and you clearly have used that combination to good effect. Anyone listening to this that, that might be either in government at the moment thinking about what next or, or perhaps in consulting looking to go to government, I just wanted to get your thoughts whether there was any particular piece of advice from that earlier part of your career that you'd, you'd give to those sorts of people. So I would say if you're coming out, if, so if you're coming out of university, um, maybe kind of take it back a step. I would go to a place that can give you, can invest in your skill development, because like you will come out of university smart and ambitious and and kind of talented and raring to go, but you will lack a lot of hard skills. And I mean, it depends what course you've done. So I don't want to generalise, but I think you learn a lot in your first couple of jobs. Like I remember writing my first ministerial piece of advice and giving it to my boss, and he was like. I mean, this is great, but like every sentence needs to be a third of the length because I was writing to university essays and it's just things like that that you learn very quickly. And big resources have money and talent to and money and time to invest in them. So, you know, like I didn't realize what a privilege it was to have that three week course at McKinsey now when I'm looking at the cost of what it would cost to send my team on that now. Like it's just completely unachievable. Right. So I would say, like, start your career at a place where you're, they're really going to invest in you and develop your skills. And then you have that grounding that you can take and do whatever. But I, I think that's really important. So if you're in government, I think it's really important for civil servants to get out of government and then go back in. Otherwise, yeah. how can you help run the country if you don't really understand the incentives that other people are facing? Similarly, if you're in a consultancy, like, get out and work in a business because your advice, you know, you're giving your advice to people who need to go and implement that advice. And it's, remarkable when you're running a business about how quickly you can think about what advice is actually useful and what advice just isn't useful yeah i think i think we see a lot of a lot of ex-consultants that go into running businesses obviously prefer people that have got a similar sort of consulting background but but there's also a lot of pushback often isn't there around whether you're just a strategy person that's great at producing decks and you know good analysis whether or are you somebody that can actually execute and make stuff happen and i think sometimes if you can make that transition go test yourself and put those skills to good effect yeah i think that's that's really good advice well i wanted to come on and talk about lifted a business you set up that is revolutionizing home care and i think am i right in saying you're a year and a half old, is that right? Um, yeah, been... yeah. We've been in market about a year and a half, yeah. Fantastic. So tell our listeners a little bit about it and what inspired you to set Lift It Up. Yeah, sure. So just when I was in Oxford doing my master's, my mum was diagnosed with early onset dementia. And I think it said right at the start, she was a senior civil servant. You know, she was a role model that I looked up to a lot as a, as a career woman. She went to Cambridge. She was, you know, she was smart and she was erudite. And I say she was, and she's still alive, but her, the conditions progressed in lots of ways. And I really struggled with that. And it was a really, and it still is a really difficult thing in my life. And we tried to do it as a family kind of from the get-go, but it became pretty clear pretty quickly that we were going to need to get some professional care. And I just find the whole experience deeply frustrating. I think in particular three things. One was a lack of control and transparency. You know, I was used to using my phone to order an Uber or kind of order a takeaway, but I couldn't get my phone out and read about my mum's carer, which just didn't make any sense to me. And the carers themselves, you know, I, I talked before about how passionate I am about trying to help people who often are kind of excluded and carers themselves get a rubbish deal. Um, mm. You know, there are 2 million care workers in the country, but 80% of them report being close to burnout. You know, the vast majority are paid less than living wage and some are even paid less than the minimum wage unlawfully. And so I really felt strongly that if I was trusting these people to support my mum and I was so grateful to them, then they deserve better conditions. 
And the third thing was was data. You know, when carers are supporting someone, they are able to access a huge amount of really valuable information in someone's home that is not being used. Um, and so I put that together and, and I was thinking for a while, you know, care needs to be better. And then I was lucky enough to meet some guys who had started a venture builder. So they were working with corporates to think about different ideas. And they had started thinking about work in the home care sector and they'd incorporated a company. So I didn't I wasn't kind of initially incorporating it. So I guess I got a head start in that sense. And I joined them and we created Lifted and we're a tech-enabled home care company. So we look after older and vulnerable people and we use our technology to give families that transparency and to improve working conditions for carers. And more broadly, we want our platform to be something that supports people right from the first point where their loved one's health starts to change through to their end of life. And it's a, you know, it's a, it's a massive, massive market in the UK and abroad in terms of creating that transformation. So it's commercially attractive. But for us, it's also about trying to improve the quality of life. So, you know, our, our apps give people information about carers before they come. They're able to understand what the carer is getting up to. We encourage our carers to show the joy of what they're doing, as well as kind of the mechanical stuff that someone does as a carer. And yes, yeah, it's, it's hugely meaningful. I mean, we've, we've been in business 18 months. We've grown very quickly. So we've now got 20 people in our head office team and about 70, 80 carers that we directly employ. And Touchwood's only five star reviews. Firstly, kudos to you. I think it's what you've achieved so far is incredible. And, and actually, I think everybody listening to this will have had some exposure, whether it's friends, family, to this industry. And, and I think a lot of people will share their frustrations with it. So I think it's, 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 it's such a good time. And, uh, and, and also, I think it's really interesting. I mean, your personal situation, which has clearly been very, very challenging for you, how you've been able to channel that and use that experience to create something that's clearly going to make a massive difference, which I think is very inspiring. Um, Care is, I guess, is, it's ultimately something that does affect us all, probably at different stages. And it sounds like, I think you've said before, that, that people aren't always aware of their, their options. So it'd be good to understand a bit about those early days. And how did you find that process of raising money, growing it, kind of the, those early f- first few months? Yeah, absolutely. So in terms of how we kind of got it off the ground, as I said, the, the venture builder guys have been thinking about it. And then, and to some extent, you know, delivery of care is a regulated service. So actually there's a relative number of kind of hoops that you have to jump through. So you've got to register with the Care Quality Commission and you've got to make sure that your platform covers quite a lot of relatively technical care documentation. So, you know, there are disadvantages to innovating in a regulated sector, but I guess the route to market is slightly clearer in that sense. And in terms of the early days, really, we started building the technology, but we, we started before the platform was ready. So we did our first few customers completely on paper, which if anything proved to me the need for technology in this space, was <laughs> I just do not know how people do it. I mean, the UK home care market is interesting because there are 11,000 home care companies and none of them have got more than two and a half percent of market share. So there's a reason why, because they, they can't get bigger without without software. So we started serving people straight away. And, you know, like, like every new business, I did everything. So, you know, I rocked up on a Saturday morning and our first client was not who we expected at all. Our first client was a lady who was pregnant and was on bed rest and so needed a carer to live with her while she was waiting for the baby to arrive. We've never had another pregnant client since. So it was a, it was very un, very abnormal. But yeah, I, I, I turned up at her house and conducted the assessment and understood what her care needs were. And then, and then we didn't have any carers yet because we'd only just started the business. So we We've, we got a carer on an overnight bus and put her up in a hotel in London and then she had to start the next day. And obviously we've, you know, we've improved things significantly since then. Um, but, you know, and, and, it, and someone said to me at the time, you know, you'll look back and you'll miss these days of hustling. 
and at the time I was like god I don't think I will like it's so stressful and now I really do because like I don't get to do the hands-on stuff in the same way that I used to and that's actually been probably one of my bigger challenges is I really like the kind of the I get a lot of satisfaction from solving a problem quickly but as you get bigger the problems you solve are harder and are less easy to solve quickly <laughs> yeah that's so interesting and it really resonates with me because I think you know when I set JBM up the first two years was all hustled we didn't have a website I was kind of doing everything from you know the I mean I was terrible always been the financial the financials has never been a strong suit but everything from kind of all of the finance stuff the business development the delivery you know trying to do some marketing but it was fun and it's uh, and, and you you know that's when you really get to know your customers and, and the ins and outs of things and then when you you know eight years on now and I'm I do miss that stage occasionally I, I so I I totally get that but you've you've clearly kind of in a relatively short amount of time achieved a lot but I know there will have been challenges and frustrations along the way so when you look back particularly that first year what would you do differently now if you had your time again and and do you have any advice for any maybe early stage founders that are on this journey right now that anything that they could learn from from your experience yeah, I mean, I guess I'd first say there are loads of, there are still loads of frustrations and challenges. And we're still, you know, we're, we're still um, a very young business. We're between seed and series A. So, you know, I, I absolutely, we're not eight years in like you are. So maybe you need to give me the advice. <laughs> so I guess there's two parts. Like, what would I do differently? I would have hired someone to manage the growth of marketing faster. Something we're hearing a lot at the moment, actually. Yeah. yeah. Because everything you think takes five minutes takes 10, not 10 hours, but five hours, maybe. And just very quickly, there's just too much for you to manage. And I think there's also a difference between the difference between the number of practical tasks you have on your to-do list and the emotional and psychological weight of the complexity of those tasks. And so even if you end up with lots and lots of little things to do, it will just crowd out the amount of space and creativity you can bring to the bigger problems. And so the more you can kind of get some of those off your plate faster, I'd say, and make it someone else's problem to own, because they will then bring their best thinking. And if you've got six different things that you're trying to own, then you can't bring your best and you'll feel rubbish and, you know, and as well. So I think I would have hired someone to do that faster. I'd have spoken to our customers more, more specifically about like the actual products more. I think we could have done more okay. of that because we spoke to them a lot about care as we were going and, and we got their feedback a lot in supporting them. But I think we focused a lot on the day-to-day and actually maybe we could have involved them more in kind of the, the bigger picture. And just a lot of the things that I think, I mean, this is my biggest challenge and I'm, I'm sure it's common for lots. Of, I, mean, I don't know if some people talk about it or not, but one of the things I really challenge, struggle with is that if it's not perfect, I don't want to go and talk to somebody about it. So I didn't want, I didn't want to go and raise investment until I was like really, really happy with all the metrics. And actually, I think starting conversations earlier and building relationships earlier and being more comfortable with things being a journey and being imperfect. I think that, that's what I wish I had done more and, and, and still wish I was better at. So I guess in terms of my advice to early stage founders, try to let the fun outweigh the fear. Great advice. I remember like, I I, I mean, I'm really passionate. People need to talk about how tough it is to run a startup and that like, it's not, you know, people like, oh, I want to run a startup because, you know, I get more work-life balance and I'm in control of my own time. And like, it's not true. Like you won't get more work-life balance (laughs) Um, and you won't be more in control. You'll be more in control of your own time in some ways. But no, like everyone says, oh, you know, I want to work for myself, but no one really works for themselves, right? Like I work for our board and I work for our customers and I work for our team and, you know, and I, and I work for my own sense of wanting to achieve something. So I guess what I'm saying is like, go to something you're really passionate about and don't beat yourself up when it's really hard and try to think, you know, like your odds of succeeding are, are low and that's not because you're not great at it, it's because it's a really difficult thing that you're doing. 
So don't beat yourself up if it doesn't immediately take off or immediately succeed. And it's not the same, but there's this, you, you know, Joe Wicks, the PE. Mm, yeah. I did a session with my, I've done two sessions last week with my five-year-old. Absolutely beasted me, to be honest with you. <laughs> oh, I'm just, I'm doing it in lockdown as well. He had like a seven-day challenge and it took me like three weeks. And I was like, oh, oh my God. <laughs> I was saying to my friend the day, you know, like, why are we not this billion-dollar business already? And, and she was saying, you know, Joe Wicks has this phrase, which is, I was a five-year overnight success. And he says, like, for five years, he was grinding and he turned up you know, on a Saturday morning to have his sessions in the park and no one turned up, but he kept turning up every week. And then suddenly he was a huge success and everyone looked at him and thought it was that easy. And it isn't for anyone. And so I I, I, I guess just be nice to yourself. I don't know if that's particularly helpful. But I, I, I think it's brilliant advice. And, and we're actually recording this on the day known as Blue Monday, where, you know, I think mental health, especially in lockdown, has affected a lot of people. And I think entrepreneurs and people I know that run businesses can be particularly hard on themselves. I think there is this culture there of you know success overnight and unicorns and you know raising loads of cash but actually in this climate it's it's a lot of it's about survival it's about you know just getting your head down and keeping going and I think if you're not kind to yourself you'll you'll burn out you'll lose the passion and the love for what you're doing and that's so often at the heart of it isn't it you know you've got this emotional connection you know to make a real difference in in act social change and I'm the same when it comes to talent and people I want to change people's lives by finding them incredible jobs and you know be a part of those growth journeys for companies and and I think it's easy to lose that sometimes when it's just a slog and it's hard and that's when I personally try and take myself away from that and remind myself of all the good things and try and celebrate the little wins and sometimes just have a bitch and a moan because sometimes that's all you can do <laughs> talk to people like you Rachel and we can compare notes and uh, you know th- there is nothing wrong with that there's nothing wrong with that but no I think it's great advice no, good. I'm, I'm, I'm glad. And just one other thing I'd say as well is I like, absolutely don't do it on your own. So, you know, I, I should have said early on that about a year ago, I was joined by my co-founder, Sam, and Sam has worked in startups throughout his career. And so he's kind of seen it all before. And sometimes when I'm like, oh my God, is this normal? He's like, yes, this is normal. <laughs> um, and, um, you know, things like for, to, to kind of your point about talent, I'm sure we'll come into it in a minute, but like in the civil service, the way of recruiting is very structured. You're, you're not allowed any kind of information about anyone. All the questions are set. You ask everyone exactly the same questions. The processes are all set. When the private sector, you like startups, you can just do it however you want, right? And so like, I think, I guess what I'm saying, and he taught me that, and I guess what I'm saying is um, do it with someone. There's no way I could, could do it without Sam. And, and now our CTO and, and, and soon to be our, our, our first really senior growth person. So absolutely don't do it on your own one because I just think it's very difficult to succeed on your own and two because there will be really tough moments and you need people to share those moments with and like Sam and I are a team and it's our business and without the two of us we we couldn't do it yeah definitely and I think for any for any solo founders listening to this if it's not a co-founder I think it's also whether it's an advisory board or people that have been there done it before mentorship which is what this podcast is all about you know there is always help out there and I think I think you can just you've just got to seek it sometimes uh, so I, I think that's that's again really good point um I just you've had the experience in government where you I guess got an academic understanding of social care and then you know sadly your, your mother's illness meant that you got an emotional connection and understanding of you know for, I guess from a customer's perspective of the, the the care industry how important was that emotional connection to your business because and and do you think that's something that entrepreneurs should be thinking about when they're starting up businesses yeah 
absolutely. Like, I think for a few different reasons. One, because it gives you real empathy with the customer. You know, like we interview our customers and say, you know, why did you choose Lifted? And a lot of them chose it because because of my story and because of my experience and because of the way I can speak to them. Especially in the early days, right, when it is literally like, trust me with your with your loved ones when we've mm. never looked after loved ones before. I think it's really important for customer empathy. It's really important for product development because if you... I mean, I think the best businesses are founded by a sense of burning injustice and like the social care system in the UK is a burning injustice, like it really is. And I can tackle elements of that. I can't tackle all of it through Lifted and that's something I have to kind of come to terms with, but I can make it a lot better in lots of ways. And I think that's really important. And, you know, we set up a community of people and it grew to, you know, 500 people in a couple of months because we could talk to them about the challenges they were facing in care that no one had talked to them about because we understood them. So I do think it's really important to have empathy with the problem. And I think the best way you have empathy is that you've experienced it. There are obviously trade-offs. You know, if my injustice had been, you know, I had a difficult experience, I don't know, trying to get a takeaway or something, then you could talk very passionately about the experience, but it wouldn't follow you in the same way it does. Like my mom yeah. still lives in a care home in Glasgow in the middle of a pandemic and that is very active for me. And yeah. so there is no escaping the job to some extent because yeah. the job and the personal intertwine. And something I'm really working on is like, how do I make lifted distinct from my experience? And how do I, how do I balance both of things? And I think people should talk more about what it means to be a mission-driven founder. That's a phrase that people trot out, but I don't think they often think about what's, what are the actual implications. And the other yeah. thing is you've got to be careful that your experience doesn't dominate because you know, I was 24, my mum was diagnosed. Most of our customers are in their 50s and 60s and probably have different expectations of our product than I do. And the product guys sometimes have to fairly challenge me and say, well, that's what you wanted, but is it what our customer would want? Yeah, um, yeah. We need both, I think. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and I certainly, there's something about the uh, the personal touch to your story and, and, and the mission behind your business, which for me makes it just so compelling the fact you've been there and you can really relate so I, I i think that that i can totally understand that and it, and it's been it's no secret to to anyone listening to this how you know, sort of a devastating impact covid-19's had on people needing care and those working as carers i i have in my own family um, a number of people that are sort of family members in care and it's been very very stressful and uh, f- from all sides really what's your kind of experience in terms of from a lifted perspective experience in the pandemic and 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 what do you think the impact the pandemic will have sort of on on the care industry as a whole are there other particular lessons we can take from it yeah i mean for lifted it's obviously very challenging you know you're we just raised our seed round i mean literally i was on the phone to the lawyers closing our seed round as Boris Johnson was announcing the first lot. Oh, and obviously, we decided our investors were going to pull out, right? But they didn't. And we raised $2 million um, led by Fuel Ventures, which was brilliant. Amazing. Um, and they've been hugely supportive. So that's been brilliant. And But then suddenly the pandemic hit. And so we were like, oh, we've worked so hard. We're going to have this money. We're going to be able to do these amazing things. And then suddenly it's like, where are all the face masks and where's all the PPE and everything else? I mean, to, to some extent, like the challenge of a pandemic... And um, some of that you already face, right? So our clients are already vulnerable for like the flu and things. So you already have to have strong protective equipment. So there's not that much difference. But the amount of updates that were coming out from the government, and the only reason you'd know it had changed is because the website guidance had changed. So you, you know, and and, and you had to keep an eye on that. In terms of the impact, I mean, obviously it's huge. So, you know, we suddenly had to orchestrate getting PPE to everyone's houses across London and across this country, we couldn't train in person anymore, which makes a big difference because one of the things we're most passionate about is attracting carers 
people into care who had not necessarily been professional carers before, but had other skills. And there are certain hands-on things that you learn as a carer that we just couldn't show people unless we were with them in person. So that, that's been really challenging. And then obviously, like every business, all of our staff suddenly remote. When we raised our seed round, there was about seven or eight of us in the business. And now there's more than 20 of us in the head office team. And I've recruited with Sam all of those people virtually. So that's obviously a huge, Impressive. A huge yeah. challenge. <laughs> I've recruited three people in lockdown. It's been one, as a recruiter myself, it's been very, very challenging. So I, I have huge, huge admiration for you. But this no mean feat. Yeah. And I mean, you know, if we've recruited 15 people and we've probably interviewed 10 times that many. So it's just mm. like, so that that's, you know, that's challenging. And I think leadership leaders should trust their teams. Of course they should, but they, but you need to also get a sense of how someone works. Sometimes you, you want to trust by default, but it is hard to, if you've never ever met someone even. So that's been interesting. Although I think, you know, I think like every business, we've realized it's less hard than you think it is. In terms of the questions of how social care, I think, is changing, I think a couple of things. One, I think it's no longer that the conversation about care is here to stay and particularly about working carers. So at Lifted, we are really passionate about helping employers get access to support for their members of staff that are caring for people. And 58 percent of working parents cared for another adult during lockdown. So, you know, your, your family are not alone. And we really want employers to get in touch with us. So if anyone is listening to this who is an employer and wants to talk about helping their workforce get more support with caring responsibilities, then look us up. I think it's accelerated the development of technology and and the way that it supports care. So we, a month ago, just released a brand new um, version of our app that is the first app in the world to give free personalized care advice. So you answer information questions about you and your loved one, and then we will create for you guidance and advice to help you get the right care you need for them and that's yeah that's been really exciting um so you can get that in in the app store and i think i think the the need for digital solutions to social care is only increasing and then at a national level like the conversation of how we're going to fund social care is only becoming more important so yeah so there's, there's lots of different ways in which it's which it's impacted it Oh, great stuff. Well, um, we wish you all the very best with uh, the years ahead with what you're trying to do. And I, I'm, I'm very excited to see see how it goes because uh, it, it, it's so needed. And you alluded there, Rachel, around uh, hiring, which is obviously a, a passion of mine and something um, I know a little bit about. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about that journey? Just, just from, you know, hiring in the early days, what you were looking for, you know, in your team. And now as you continue to scale, are there particular kind of attributes, quality skill sets that are becoming more and more prevalent? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I think what's really helpful is that Sam and I have almost quite different approaches. And he's done a lot of hiring before in other startups and has quite a strong sense of what he looks for in people. And we kind of go back and forth because I think my tendency is to recruit for the mission first, because I think, firstly, care is quite tough. And, you know, if you don't care about it, I don't think you'll be resilient. And secondly, you know, we we think it's cool to care and we don't really have any time for people who don't think it's cool to care. But I'm also very conscious that a key thing we're trying to do is diversify who we attract into the care sector. And, you know, if you don't have personal experience, you know, people don't talk about social care that much. And it's, you know, and it's very heavily female dominated. It's often seen as not very innovative. So sometimes maybe you need to attract people who've got brilliant skills and then they'll become passionate when they get in the business and they see the impact. And that balance is an interesting one to get right, I would say. I think in general, we've ended up with a really mission-driven team, uh, which I'm really passionate about. And you can see everyone kind of comes alive. We do this meeting every Friday called Friday Wins, 
where everyone has to give their wins, the biggest wins of the week, and then they go through them and all the different teams share them. And the guys that work directly with the clients always share the wins. And they're really heartwarming. Like, you know, for example, we had a lady who was confined to bed and she's brilliant. Every time you phone her, she blesses you. She gives me the blessings of Mother Mary every time I speak to her. I'm never quite sure what to say back because I don't know what one says. (laughs) And for a long time, she had really wanted to go and visit her husband's grave, like such a simple thing, but she hadn't been able to do it. And just before Christmas, we got her to his grave. And it's such a like small thing in some ways. And it's such a like kind of untech thing. But for her, it was everything. Mm. Um, and the whole team could feel that. And I think sharing those moments is, is really meaningful. So, so yeah, so, so, so to, to kind of take it back to your question about, you know, what attributes do we look like? I guess we're looking for people that are motivated by the change we want to make. People need to be resilient in a startup. I think that's really important. Um, in terms of how our process has evolved, it was interesting. I was listening to one of your interviews of the day with the, the guy that founded CarWow, and he was saying at the beginning they had they didn't give someone one interview and then offer them a job. We never quite did one interview and offer them a job, but not far off. Increasingly, I I want people to kind of show us what they can do, and it's a difficult balance, right? Because you don't want to give someone a big task and say, you know, work on this unpaid because I don't think that's fair. But increasingly, like, you know, if, if someone says, you know, I'm 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 great at sales, okay, well let's do a couple of practice sales calls and and let's see. And I think I think that's only fair because actually interviewing is a skill and you know you, you get taught techniques to answer questions and some people just aren't great at interviewing but actually they have all the skills you need and so setting them as many practical examples as you can I think is important I don't know if you'd agree with that yeah no definitely I think I think it's there's some people are very very good at selling themselves <laughs> and uh, you know I've got interviewing down to a T but actually when they get in the business and I've seen this I've made mistakes myself which is is ridiculous really but it's actually I find the hardest part of the job is getting it right and that's because like you the mission part of my business is so important and getting people that truly buy into it but they also need to be able to make money it's a sales job at the end of the day it's you've got to be commercial and sometimes we've you know this is a few years back but we have hired someone that's you know been brilliant in the interview and then you get here and then you realize that actually selling in the way that we do which is very consultative and relationship driven and was very different to the more transactional style that they were used to. And I hadn't properly sort of sussed that out. And I'd, and that's why we started bringing in versions of role plays or presentations and case studies just to try and see that in action. So I completely agree with you. Rachel, I'm uh, sorry to say I could talk to you for hours, but we're getting towards the end. Um, and I wanted to wrap up with three quick wrap up questions, which we always ask. The first one is about mentorship, unsurprisingly. Do you have a mentor or mentors? And if so, how have they helped you with your career? Yeah, I don't have an. I don't have one mentor. I have um, lots of people. So I have a coach sometimes that I work with, a couple of coaches that I've worked with. I have a couple of founders that I really look up to and I try to use their time really sparingly because they're super, super busy people. And um, particularly, there are just not enough brilliant post-Series A female founders. So the ones that are kind of inundated with requests. So I find that useful. Where else do I, in terms of talking to people, I have like former bosses that I still talk to. And I think those conversations are really, really helpful. And then I invest in my own mental health and have someone I speak to about that as well. So I think that's really important. So yeah, a, a mix. And 2021 uh, has just started and I'm, I know you're already crazy busy and have bold aspirations for the year ahead. Tell us a little bit about them. What, what do you hope for personally and professionally? So personally, I want this to be the year that I am able to be more self-compassionate. And as I said before, like live more in the fun than in the fear. I think that might be my kind of... And I think also that that self-compassion will extend to other people. I think I hold myself to high standards and I hold other people to them. 
and actually like getting more comfortable with it being a journey, not perfect first mm. go important. So that's personally. And I also I also think it's really important to balance like your life with not just work, which obviously is really hard during lockdown, right? But yeah, but more I'm, important than ever, yeah, that I think to actually make sure you leave the one room that you work in, yeah, that is also home. So I'm gonna to apply to be a trustee for a charity. I'm gonna do a couple of things like that to try and um and also just do like actual more genuine fun. I saw my friend the other day, she's like, that is not count as adding more fun to your <laughs> I was like, but I will find it fun. But you know, I'm I, I I play the piano and I like singing, so I'm gonna try and do a bit more of that stuff. Um in terms of professionally, so lifted this year is our, our kind of real goal is to scale. So we're about to go and 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 raise our series A, which obviously is a whole other challenge um, to get some capital to really expand and to make our app the best app it can be in terms of experience for families and for carers, specifically focusing on carers and how to make their lives better so that we can expand across the UK and also so that we can help people earlier in the journey so we can become a place they go to. So with our new app, giving people free personalised care advice, I said that's really started to grow because we can now reach people who we can't care for straight away. So really expanding our geographic footprint and, you know, and become that go-to place for the millions and millions of people that need advice and support about care. And then the third thing I'd say is we really want to expand our offer to employers and really change the conversation around care in the UK. And I think employers talk a lot about childcare, but they don't talk about elder care. Um, mm-hmm. and actually, the single biggest reason that senior women leave the workforce is to care for elderly parents. So it's a win to employers and a win and a win to society and the economy in general. Definitely. And I'm sure there'll be people listening to this, the working companies that that, that may well become customers. And I, I would implore you all to reach out to Rachel because I think it's, uh, yeah, I, I, I can see that being hugely beneficial. Well, that's all super exciting. And, and as I said earlier, we, we wish you nothing but success. And the final question, Rachel, just to, to wrap things up for anyone listening to this that is thinking about a big career move at the moment, what final piece of advice would you leave them with? Oh, so thinking about a big career move. So where to go next, you mean? Yeah, or just general career advice. I guess we always like to leave our listeners with something tangible and something to uh, inspire them for the rest of the day. Oh, what a good question. Um, so I read it. I read it last night. So it's um. So I didn't. I didn't say it, but follow your bliss. Follow like the that. thing that makes your heart, you know, really warm to it. I remember when I when I quit McKinsey to do Lifted, and quite a few people um said to me like, "What are you doing?" In fact, someone once described it as the worst idea I'd ever had. But I just didn't care. Like I just. Li- I, it was really interesting for me because like usually that kind of thing would really impact me, but I just didn't care because I was like. I don't care because I'm going to spend every day fighting for something I really believe in and I'm going to bring the best of myself because that's not when I know I'm the best. And I think if you follow your bliss, you won't go wrong. And then I'd add to that and read. Read as much as you possibly can by other people who've been in business, by not even just business, just the more you read, the more you learn, the more you learn, the more you bring connections to things, the better you will be in any job. So that's a bit of a broad statement to read, but I pick a couple of topics that you're passionate about and read about them and you will never regret time you spend reading is my view i think that is very very wise advice rachel thank you so much it's been a pleasure talking to you and yeah i i'm sure that will have left a really big impact on anyone that's listened so um thank you for your time and we wish you all the very best for the rest of the year thank you so much thank you so much for having me and do check us out do um at liftedcare.com awesome thank you so much I really hope you enjoyed that episode of the 40 Minute Mentor and if you did, please leave us a review and tell your friends so we can continue to bring you awesome interviews from inspiring entrepreneurs and business leaders. Please also feel free to reach out at info at jbmc.co.uk. 
Thanks again for all your support. This episode is brought to you by JBM SOS, a new on-demand talent solution for VC and PE-backed startups and scale-ups. SOS gives clients access to a pool of over 200 high-profile scale-up COOs, GMs, and ops strategy consultants on an interim or project basis. So, if you're a founder or investor looking for fast access to world-class talent to help you execute and scale at pace, let our JBM SOS team be your partner in growth. To learn more, get in touch at info at jbmc.co.uk.